So today, my, in my work with Soada Catalysts, we interact with 13,000 people um, in 89 countries. So we spend a lot of time experiment with approaches to capture all the different worldviews, mental models, and uh, understanding the subcultures. So the, the intention is never to unify them or normalize them. Instead, we wanted to be able to engage in a dialogue that builds these bridges between cultures and different worldviews so we can open new possibilities. Hi, I'm Shannon Lucas. And I'm Tracy Lovejoy. And we're the co-CEOs of Catalyst Constellations, which is dedicated to catalyzing innate change makers to accelerate positive change. This is our podcast, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out, where we highlight catalysts that are creating amazing change in the world. In this season of the podcast, we're doing a deep dive into the skills that make catalysts successful. I'm so thrilled to have with us today, Hemerson Pais, uh, who aims to unlock people's collective potential and remove barriers at work that prevent everyone from being fulfilled, happier, and healthier. Currently, he works for Roche Pharmaceuticals as a global network catalyst in Basel. However, 20 years of working experience in seven countries and three continents has shaped his view of work and people. Improving operational processes or designing a company strategy for FMCG, pharmaceuticals, government agency, and business services. In 2022, Hammerson and the team won the highest award from the Brandon Hall Group for a multi-year program on social collaborative learning to unleash the power of innovation and collaboration. In March, his team of catalysts was one of the top 10 finalists in the Next Practices Award for fostering a cultural transformation and unleashing collaborations power for 13,000 people in 89 countries. Thank you so much for being with us today, Emerson. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Shannon and Tracy. And I'm just going to do a shout out if you're interested a little bit more in, in Hemerson's background and his work with the Catalyst. We actually featured him in one of our ebooks from 2021. So we'll put the link in the show notes so you can see how much progress Hemerson has made in the last couple of years. So, Hemerson, as the Catalyst man creating those Catalyst networks, how do you relate to the concept of Catalyst? Oh, I relate so much that I put in my title, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I made it my mission uh, to enable all the Catalysts. So I relate because I know how it feels to connect the dots that nobody noticed, the excitement of seeing all the possibilities to make the world better, to make the life of our colleagues more fulfilling, to serve customers better. In your case, in pharmaceutical, to create more medical benefits to patients. Uh, I also know how lonely it feels to overcome all the barriers to materialize mm -hmm. the possibilities we see. Mm -hmm. I know how it feels tiring to make ourselves understood, because by definition, the future has not yet happened. So we, the catalysts, often lack the language to paint our vision. So that's, that's how I relate. I help all the catalysts by providing knowledge and information so they can reshape their own environment and reshuffle the power that blocks them. Um, I help by giving them the means to change their context. Uh, that's, that's how I relate to it, Shannon. Amazing. And um, there's not a lot of people that I meet that would probably wear the label catalyst of catalyst sort of like we do, but I think you're part of that club. Does that resonate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> it's like, like you too, I'm very much inspired by, by that energy. Awesome. Um, so you've had years of experience now. I'm super excited to find out like what are the one or two essential skills that have made you successful as a catalyst and maybe some of the stories of how they've helped or are there times when maybe you failed that you could talk about that you didn't have these skills? 
Yeah, I, I learned the skills mostly by failing first. Um, <laughs> so, uh -huh. so the two skills that I would share, I'm still working on, right? First is communication. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's super hard um, how you actually talk about the wonders of oceans, for instance, for someone who's who has lived in the desert throughout their life, right? How do you explain the future with a language that we don't have yet in the present? Um, I learned this import the importance of of unlearning uh, very early on in my career when I moved to China. I was introducing digital innovation in the footwear industry in the year two thousand. So all the team dynamics, group psychology, and negotiation strategies I have learned in the West were not working there. I failed very quickly and miserably. <laughs> but also very quickly, I knew I had to unlearn the Western philosophy and mentality and embrace the Chinese philosophy and mental model. From that moment on, I spend a lot of time trying to immerse myself in learning different perspectives in whatever group, in whatever organization I'm I'm working and is still is still a long journey. So today, my in my work with other catalysts, we interact with thirteen thousand people um, in eighty nine countries. So we spend a lot of time experiment with approaches to capture all the different worldviews, mental models, and uh, understanding the subcultures. So the the intention is never to unify them or normalize them. Instead. We wanted to be able to engage in a dialogue that builds these bridges between cultures and different worldviews so we can open new possibilities. So I genuinely believe that this is the path for us to work with our customers and stakeholders and solve the divide between gender, economic class, and races, all of which impact access to health. Um, and I'm still working on this skill. Uh, so <laughs> A long journey into to really get good at listening and engaging with different perspectives. And the second skill. Um, and I, before I'd love to just yeah. that was that was mind blowing. So I want to come back. I'm glad you have a second one. Um, I'm wondering if you can like. There's so much I want to respond to there. First, I loved what you said, and I wish I could capture it verbatim about like you're not trying to make it homogenous. Like as you're identifying the subcultures, you're recognizing those and doing the bridging between them, which I just think is so powerful and important. And, and what you were talking about, even the different gender and race and socioeconomic things. I mean, I think that's really important. But I am curious because the the meta perspective that you have about letting go of unlearning some of the Western traditions and learning some of the Eastern, can you share some of the things that you had to let go of and some of the things that you learned from Eastern and, and what have you brought with you back as back into Europe? Yeah. So practically, I, I think the main important point is for me to, what I learned is the ability to let go of what I think it's the right thing or is that that's right. Um, a clear example, like I remember when I was in China, I was explaining how trying to map a process. I was in the beginning of my career working with colleagues, trying to understand process so then we can digitalize, right? And I was explaining from left to right and I understood they look at me like puzzled. And I said, wait, wait a second. How actually you see the time flowing? And it's from top to bottom. Um, and that helped it. It's a very small detail, but then helped me to wake up and say, okay, maybe all the practices I have um, acquired in terms of team dynamics, they are not 100% replicable here. And then what I take with me in my career is exactly that. Maybe my perspective or the perspective of a group X is not necessarily the right one. It's just a different perspective than the group that and the same thing when we're talking about different countries and different cultures is exactly the same thing 
I would always imagine what is that person, what that person or that group is leaving that context. We cannot assume that um, cultural context in China um, is in people that live there will be reacting to the same information news than we have here in the Western. Mm. They have a different angle on those. So therefore, that is what I carry with me, is always this curiosity and about other cultures. Practically at work, what we do is trying to do is exactly that. We, in a big company, you'd think there is the company culture and it's uniform. It's not. And there are different cultures. There are subcultures in different groups. And our intention is really to surface that and read the language that they're using and capturing that and using that to engage in the dialogue. Simple example is we just did a, a crowdsourcing. We have 14 communities of 600 uh, employees where they try to solve problems um, that are relevant to them. You can see patterns emerging in those different communities, patterns of, of language that uh, they use. Rather, for instance, rather than talking about uh, internal work, they want to talk about impactful work. Um, they don't want to talk about process. They want to talk about value delivery. Mm. However, they use slightly different language, but it's a pattern that emerged. So we are able then to engage in the conversation using those, that language rather than imposing our um, perspective on how we should have that dialogue. It's so, it's so fascinating. And, and sorry, I, want, I need to ask one more follow-up question on this first skill, because essentially when I listen to you, we do a lot of work with organizations about helping to cultivate emotional intelligence. And that's essentially what you were saying, which is like, there's a level of self-awareness. You're like, I'm not being successful here when you're in China, but there was a kind of like zoom out, like they're not with me either. And, and the curiosity about how do I bring them along? Like looking at what's going on for the other people. Is that something that you consciously create or, or, or cultivate with your catalyst across the network? Yes. Then with one of the skills we do uh, and reach out um, to understand different perspective. Um, also the is a, another behavior we see many of them adopting, Shano, actually, we learn from them. So the yeah. empathetic um, conversation, it's like many people ask, oh, dude, the catalysts are very extrovert people. I say, actually, uh, many of them are very introvert. They listen more because by listening, they try to engage in your language. They, they understand what's important to the other part, and then they're mm -hmm. able to um, have a dialogue. So there is a lot of curiosity. Uh, going around so yeah this is something we is one of the practices that we we learn from them and we incentivize others to adopt Amazing. it's not that easy i would say because we have convictions we have worldviews and we we bring up we're brought up in certain environments with certain perspective of the world and sometimes letting go of that perspective it's a little bit of letting go of your identity who yes. you are and uh, what you stand for um but no no need to be that uh, radical it's only enough that you you put yourself in a balcony view and say if i'm watching these two people talking myself and someone else what is actually surfacing what is what is different there amazing Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for landing it there. And that power of listening that underpins the, 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 the productive communication that you were talking about. Yep. Go ahead. Tracy has a, we, we, we're going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I, it, I, I love when you started saying Hammerson that, you know, it's communication and I loved the metaphor. How do you help someone in the desert 
understand the wonders of the ocean? How do you help someone see a future they haven't seen? I thought we were like talking about storytelling. And so I love that, that the, the key to communicating something that's unknown comes from listening to how they're speaking today and what their language is today and what their paradigms and their frameworks are today, which seems like, yes, of course, but it sounds counterintuitive. And I'm curious, how do you teach people that? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think we came out to a process. Not storytelling is a good piece of it. So if you um, if you want to tell the story that it, of of a future that you haven't seen yet, and you invite people to be part of that exercise, they're gonna have to use their language, right? And they have to formulate those narratives and those stories using what they know. Um, so if you were to talk about if we are back in the 19, in 1910s and talking about a self-driven car, we were probably talking about a carriage that moved by themselves, right? Because that's the, that's the universe we know. Um, it, that helps to paint. So we, I think that we don't have a methodology for that. What we are doing is surfacing and asking people to reconsider, approach with curiosity and listen very carefully. And uh, yes, building stories is one of the exercises we do where people invite, um, we bring people from different perspectives, different countries or different cultures, and they'll craft together a story of what they want to see in the future related specific theme. And that helps to surface the language um, more, more appropriate for that group. Thank you. And the point that you ended on, I want to also double, not double click on, just sort of like call out again, is that notion of for the catalyst, letting go of our idea or creating space around it and how tied to that, our, that, that identity it can be. And, and having some time almost for like, grieving might be too strong of a word, but like there's some emotional management or grace that we have to give ourselves as we're going through that process that is profound. When you start talking about like impacting my identity, those are profound changes, Hemerson. So I just wanted to call out that you went there <laughs> and that that's true. Um, all right, so what's the second skill? We'll have to keep this- The second thing, uh, the second skill is also related to the first one. It's and how well we are building these bridges, these divides between worldviews, right? So. One thing that's very clear is that every change fails because it cannot invite supporters of the current system to explore our new water. Uh, I give an example. In, in organizations, uh, there is this idea that to make anything happen, management only needs to issue an order or policy, which everybody will follow. So the first initiative everyone has is like, we want to change this, this um, practice, practice. So let's just ask top management and that everything is going to happen. But if this were the case, there would be no bureaucracy, right? And everybody would be innovative and customer obsessed because no CEO would tell you that they favor bureaucracy over innovation customers. So we can, <laughs> we, right? Totally. So we conduct an experiment to test the, the, this fantasy of uh, top management issuing policies. One of the practices we introduced, which was critical to enable catalysts to um, act was to um, asking, we asked employees to make their skills, capabilities, and past work experience visible in your internal employee platform. Very much like uh, LinkedIn. It's a practice that benefits employees because such information is used when new project teams are assembled and we want that to happen uh, initiated by catalysts. 
job posts are open or when promotions are considered. So the only action the employees have really to do is to go into the system, populate the system for the first time or authorize it to capture the information that's already in their LinkedIn profile. So we, we, we had two general managers of Germany and China, two countries with a traditional culture of respect for hierarchy and authority. And they communicate the benefits to a subset of employees and request them to update their profiles in the system. Following the conventional view, we would expect to see 90% of compliance in China and Germany. So the result was that out of 100 employees that read the communication, only seven updated in their profile in China. In Germany, two out of 100 employees updated their profile. Now we contrast that with Spain and Italy. There, we count on the energy enthusiasm of key social connectors and boundary spanners. These are colleagues. They are trusted by many teams across departments and functions. They are empathic and they are caring for their colleagues. Therefore, they, they tend to embed themselves in what we call a network of trust. You could call them, we could call them trusted catalysts. So in Spain and Italy, the collaboration with the catalysts trusted network generated an adoption of the behavior in the range of 80% in 12 months. So the general managers there issued no policy, yet nearly our employees updated their profile. The difference seems subtle, but the approaches are rooted in a very different worldview. The first experiment introduced the practice based on the fantasy that we know what matters to people. The practice generates benefits to employees and to business, right? So therefore, we just we tell the, the authority, the high authority to tell employees what to do, tell the benefits and explain what to do. In this approach, there is no building bridges, right? Between different perspectives. Uh, it's a one-way interaction. Uh, the general manager tells what to do. In the second approach, our first task is to identify those trusted catalysts based on their peer recognition, not based on a biased view of management. Second is to listen to those catalysts because we wanted to understand what the perspective of that trusted network that extended to a large majority of the employees, to 90% of them. The second step is to have a dialogue, right? Explain the intentions to these few trusted catalysts that we that want to contribute. Listen back with curiosity what their perspective on it is, which could be very different from what we think it is, and adapt, and then continue the conversation. Then third step is to create a small movement with the trusted catalyst's help. From that moment on is a continuous dialogue and engagement with every small cluster and subgroup following the path of the trusted uh, network. So this way, this is what I mean by developing trusted relationships across the divide, even when it seems obvious, and partnering with those relationships. I think this is one of the skills that would help any catalyst to achieve much better result, and they will not feel alone, right, on that, on that journey. They will have engaged with other catalysts and with a wide part of the organization. I love it so much. And it's such an interesting call to action for catalysts. Like not all catalysts obviously are those boundary spanners, the influencers. And I think people also underestimate how much energy that can take and intentionality can take to, you know, cause those boundary spanners, the super connectors are 
constantly in conversation with people and it doesn't mean they're introverts it just means that they value being able to get that input and have those connections but for people who aren't that it's such a great call to action either start to develop those skills yourself because you'll be less alone and you'll actually accelerate meaningful change um, or find the ones like if that's not what you want to yeah. do but you can still find the influence influencers the catalyst influencers which it sounds like has been part of your process so um, and it's one of the things that goes unspoken and i'm glad that we that you called that out for for people Absolutely. All right. Sorry, what was that? This is what's going to be my call to action, indeed. <laughs> you, we'll come you back to it. To my call to action channel. <laughs> awesome. I'm a mind reader. Um, all right. So, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing as a catalyst leader these days? Yeah, the biggest challenge is still um, we are a big organization, right? So it's still difficult for us to create that safe space, safe space for catalysts inside the organization so they can actually continue innovating and acting opportunities and challenges they see. Today, uh, we have around 800 um, self-managed teams initiated by catalysts. Each team is composed on average of four to six people, which means that catalysts are now mobilizing around 4,800 employees across um, 80 countries to address complex patient challenges. Despite that, despite the existing tensions and challenges. So they have gained much autonomy, freedom to operate and visibility. However, uh, many team members and catalysts still feel unsafe because we have not yet reshaped the structures, the management structures we have, right? We still have traditional uh, cost centers, job descriptions, and uh, traditional people practices. So we, we are still... <laughs> work on developing alliances that are willing of what we thought a catalyst that are willing to challenge those process and and help to create a safe space for innovation and fast delivery of med, uh, medical benefits for patients sometimes i wish we could simply issue a policy you know but it doesn't work like that <laughs> um I, there's, so there's a there's a tactical question that I just need to get out of the way because I think I'm I've been thinking about it the whole time I'm I, I'm imagining our listeners are, do your catalysts get like twenty percent of their time or ten percent of their time or like what is the, in addition to the psych safety and the org structure, what is the permission that they're given to to follow these activities? And and there you go, um, legally technically it's thirty percent of the time, and uh, technically because of. Um, uh, taxes and legal reasons um, to work in an international space, right? right. Um, that's why we operate in. But in reality, Shannon, if it's related to the business, then that is, it's the business. I can give right. an example. There is one of our cat one catalyst that he wanted to solve the um, elevated medical education for um, doctors and nurses in Southeast Asia um, on home-based care treatment. It's a practice not widely accepted, but with tremendous benefit for patients, not so much for hospitals because they have to rethink how to do um, incomes, the, the revenue is different. And this catalyst is based in Singapore. So he, the, the idea that he and others had is to form a team and uh, um, convince doctors and nurses from Singapore, which are a center of excellence for home-based treatment, to go around Southeast Asia, developing best practices or explain their best practice of home-based treatment um, for doctors, nurses, and hospital administrators. Now, you argue, is this an extra thing that they are doing on the side? 
And legally, he's helping other countries and probably engaging in trips with other countries, um, serving, helping Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia. So legally, it's 30%. But it's so important for our business that um, what if the person is helping 70%, not traveling, but being in Singapore and helping 70% of their time on these activities? Is it still beneficial for patients? Is it beneficial for um, the, the mission that the company has to provide better uh, access to medicines and bring more um, medical benefits to patients. So, yeah, how yeah. how you go? How you divide that thirty that time that they are doing um, in applying to a vision that they have that brings benefits to patient and their job, right? And this is a little bit of the tension that exists because. Mm -hmm. Give um, for a manager that um, if this person is sitting in a department that is generating analytics, well, that is not related to analytics, <laughs> right? But super important for patients, right? Yeah. And that's when the tension, the tension of the normal structure comes to place. So, was that a good uh, I, technical clarification? <laughs> it, it is, and I think it's important for Catalyst to hear because we can be really romantic in our notion about like the magic wand that an organization can wave and just like make it so. And I think it's important for everyone to recognize like there are legal and governance things, you know, requirements out there, laws, rules, policies that companies have to adhere to. So it's often not for lack of desire or even trying, but just right now, sort of the systemic reality of what it means to be working in a large organization. So um, hopefully that will, there's a little release valve for the catalyst to let go of some of the frustration if you know like the why, it's not the bad intention that there's an actual why behind it that you can understand. So thanks for sharing that. Um, at some point, I'd love to have you back on or maybe in our follow-up research, because I know you guys were also talking about reinventing organizations and, and teal organizations. We don't have time for that today, but I would really love to come back to that conversation. So, all right, Tracy, over to you for rapid fire. Rapid fire, question one for you, Hammerson. What's one thing you do to be ready for a big meeting? Yeah, big or small, I always do the same thing, Tracy. I make sure that we have enough conditions and structures so everyone can contribute and we can actually understand the different perspectives in that meeting. I, was, I use liberating structures a lot um, before, <laughs> during, and after the meeting. Um, also, for me, it's most important um, that people continue co contributing and collaborating after the meeting, right? Because it's, it's only after the meetings that those inspiring words become actions and those actions transforming in long-lasting change. Can you give an example of what it means to set up the structure so everyone can contribute before and after? Yeah, sure. For instance, in the very first 15 to 20 minutes of a meeting, everyone uh, start with one um, contributing with one word, how they're feeling, we have the shaking question, or we create a space, um, a structure that everyone start contributing. Everyone has a moment to, to um, share what they think about a problem or a challenge in the first, very first 15 minutes. Because we know that in the very first 15 minutes of a meeting, if people contribute, they're more willing then to continue engaged in the rest of the meeting. So that's one, one of the strategies. Deliberate structure is super helpful. If um, I would recommend Catalyst to take a look, it's free. There are 32 of those, and you can fit them in different, different situations um, or different meetings objectives. Was that deliberate strategy? Is that what I heard? Liberating structures. Liberating structures. Got you. Thank you so much for that clarification. 
liberating structures, a huge fan, agreed. Fantastic, thank you for that really, really concrete example. Second rapid fire question. Number two, what is your favorite way to spend a free day? Outdoors, uh, doing sports, enjoying nature, um, enjoying a little bit of the world away from the, the screens and the computer. <laughs> and why? What does that, what does that give to you? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it recharges. I mean, it helped me to recharge. I get in nature. Um, it's, it's how I actually get recharged. Um, it also gives me perspective. Nothing more inspiring when you have a problem to look into it from the top of the mountain and look, see the, the oceans, right? And or other mountains. Um, yeah. it, it gives a perspective of, of the word, yeah. And it's part of why I asked the why. It's interesting. So it's, it, it serves multiple things for you. It's recharging and it's actually supporting your problem solving. So it's not either I'm working and problem solving or I'm having fun. It's I'm you know doing this part and then I'm engaging and being in nature and sport and that's helping me problem solve it from a different, in a different perspective. Yeah, also because when you are trying to problem solve at the organization, you probably get too much focus on that a limited perspective. And by disconnecting, having a, a word view or being nature, I like, to, I like to joke that the best way to spend time is, is, is getting to risk activities, near-death risk activities. Then you really get a good perspective of life. <laughs> okay, that problem I thought I had is not that big. You and Shannon need to spend more time together, Hammerson. Rock climbing, mountain search and rescue, all the yes, things, propelling. Exactly. Motorcycle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right. Your most fav favorite catalyst that is dead or alive. Yeah, I, I would have to break the rule of this one because my favorite catalysts, they are those that are working with me, right? <laughs> That, that is a really working. good answer. They're not famous yet, yet. <laughs> but they are, no, they're taking they're taking significant professional risks to 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 really dismantle or work in the margins of bureaucracy to bring innovation, uh, innovative treatments for patients. So I I have two um, that I would like just to call. One is Ekaterina, she's a medical scientist. She believes in the power of igniting purpose in every person to innovate for patients. And she made a video, she shared around and her vision inspired over 200 people to now start exploring the personal purpose to guide and reevaluate their working practices. So that, that's one of them. And only, the other one is Sylvia. She's administrative support team member in our society. Diagnosed site in Manhai. She believes, for instance, in creating the conditions for everyone to have the ideas and voices heard. So her vision helped to revolutionize collaborative practices in, in the site. She inspired more than 400 people and teams to adopt liberating structures in their regular meetings. So they didn't let the, the um, label of what they're working on limit themselves. So we have scientists to work on people and administrative support working on managing teams, right? On, on helping teams to evolve. And they're inspirational for, for 400, 200 people. Well, a round of applause for Katarina and Yay! Sylvia. And I love that you broke the rules and shouted out people. And I love the framing of these are people that take risks every day. Something that we as catalysts can end up feeling like we take shame on for from the organization. And so to celebrate that in this public space, I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that gift. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity as well. Yeah. So as we wrap up, share with us 
your call to listeners. I know Shannon was was doing a little spoiler here earlier, but from your words. Yeah, I, I mean, Shannon got spot on on uh, my call to action. I think people, I mean, catalysts need to continue pursuing their vision and speak loud, broadly, and reach out, right? Form alliance, uh, reach beyond the confines of the teams, you are with department organizations. Um, there are other catalysts out there, I'm sure, and uh, some of them are willing to join the fort um, on, on materialize your vision. So if you're listening to the podcast, right, is a, is a good step forward because they already know that there are many catalysts out there. Now they need to invite others to join the constellation of catalysts, right? So you never know which adventure that your invitation is going to take you to. So amen. I feel inspired. Totally. Totally. Amen. <laughs> oh, um, Emerson, this has been just a joyous way to spend an hour. Thank you for being with us. Thank today. you. <laughs> Thank you very and much. Yes. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about how to accelerate positive change, go to our website at www.catalystconstellation.com. And of course, be sure to check out our book, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out. If you have other catalysts in your life, as Hemerson said, hit the share button and send a link their way.